If you would, turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4. Today we come to the end of our study of this short book. It's been a book about a runaway preacher and a compassionate God. It's been a book about us, and it's been a book about Jesus. And I hope you've seen all of those things as we have spent the last several weeks uh, in this short and fantastical tale of Jonah. It's a book that began very big and very busy with, uh, with sailors and storms and a fish and a city in sackcloth. But this morning as we come, as we conclude with Jonah chapter 4, we return to really where the very beginning of the book began. God and Jonah. A prophet and his God. I've entitled this morning's sermon, this last episode, A Tale of Two Hearts. Because I think that's what the scripture points us to this morning in Jonah chapter 4. My prayer is that we would understand and that we would see more of who God is and stand in awe of Him. But also that we might see more of who we are. And the chasm that exists between us and our great God. Listen as I read Jonah chapter 4. I'm actually going to start in verse 10 of chapter 3. And we'll read to the end of the book. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said that He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Well, Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons 
who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. Do you ever have a problem with tantrums in your house? Or maybe you're a young person here and you recall some tantrums even this past week. I wouldn't want to embarrass my children, so I'll just say that we never, ever deal with tantrums in the Hitchcock home. Never. Ever. Yeah, right. It's one thing to see tantrums in those who in some ways don't know any better. You know, in our kids who don't have the maturity to really process what is going on and process disappointment well. But it's another thing altogether to see a tantrum in an adult. After all, a tantrum is defined, I looked it up, as an uncontrolled outburst of anger and frustration, comma, typically in a young child. I saw a video not too long ago about the 10 best top 10 tantrums in sports. One of those little YouTube ESPN things. Everything from managers going out on the baseball field and picking up second base and carrying it off to basketball players throwing cups all over the court. You know, John McEnroe defined his career in many ways for the tantrums that he threw on the tennis court. Tantrums are never pretty. Particularly when one is dealing not with an umpire or a referee, but with God himself. You see, our main character this morning, Jonah, once again lets us down. He once again disappoints us. He is not the hero of this story. He once again shows us that he's not quite there. He doesn't quite fully get it. What doesn't he get? He doesn't get grace yet. He doesn't understand mercy He knows it in his head. He's even confessed it with his mouth. But is it deep in his heart? This morning as we learn from Jonah, as we learn from God's Word, I want us to focus our attention briefly on three things. Three things that the Lord, I think, teaches us from His Word this morning in Jonah chapter 4. And the first one is this. God's grace naturally offends the human heart. Let me repeat that. God's grace naturally offends the human heart. And now before you get all bent out of shape and judgmental about how Jonah responds here to the Lord, let's just establish first of all that you and I are cut from the very same cloth that Jonah is cut. Yes, grace is one of those things that is at the center of who we are as Christians. We talk about it all the time. God's unmerited favor to us. It's one of those things that distinguishes us from all other religions, and yet it's one of those things that is hardest to swallow at times. 
both in our lives, in our own hearts, as well as in the lives of others, in those that we see around us. What do I mean? Well, after a hard road to get Jonah to the point of obedience, you'll remember last week that Jonah finally came to the point where he was willing to do what God called him to do. He goes into the city of Nineveh, this great and wicked city, and he proclaims that Nineveh will be overthrown. And the response that Jonah the preacher gets is a preacher's dream. Everyone not only hears, but it doesn't go in one ear and out the other. It changes them. A five-word, remember, hopeless sermon has created a citywide revival. The violence ceases. The idolatry is turned from. Hearts are tender and broken and humble before the Lord. From the king on his throne to the beggar on, his, on the street, even to the cattle in the field. They're even wearing sackcloth in humility. God's grace and God's power is on full display. And we say, yes, Jonah, yes. And he says, no, no. Jonah is ticked. He's angry. And the Hebrew phrase that the writer of this book uses here is vivid and strong. We could say literally, it was evil to Jonah as a great evil and it burned to him. That's what our translators have have translated exceedingly angry. It was a great evil to him. And so he lashes out at the Lord. I mean, this, this is incredible. He lashes out to the Lord. I knew it. I knew it. I knew this would happen. You see, this is exactly why I ran. I knew that you would do something like this. I know you. I saw this coming. And I just can't believe that it's really happened. Just kill me now. And we say, whoa, Jonah. This is God you're talking to. What would produce this kind of response in Jonah? Why would he react this way? We looked at a few possible reasons in chapter 1. One was the evil of Nineveh. There's no doubt that that Nineveh was a wicked city, worthy of destruction and judgment. The Assyrians were known for their tremendous atrocities. So maybe Jonah was just concerned. About that, maybe there was the added fact that the Assyrians were the enemy to the north. They were this incredible threat to Israel. Not just were they enemies, not just that were they wicked, excuse me, but they were enemies who threatened God's people's very existence. Or maybe Jonah was thinking more personal, like his reputation. I mean, after all, what was Jonah's sermon to the Ninevites? It was... Destruction is coming, and that's not happening. Remember Jonah, way back in chapter 1, remember Jonah was the successful prophet. 
He was the national hero who had prophesied in 2 Kings, and it had happened, and it had blessed God's people. Well, all of these things may have played a part to one degree or another, but I think if we go back to Jonah, some of Jonah's very first words, the first words to the sailors on the ship, in chapter 1, verse 9, I think that gives us a hint of what Jonah is really thinking about. The sailors ask him, who are you? And he says, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. Now all those other things are mixed in, but I think Jonah had made his heritage, his nationality, not just his identity, but his idolatry and his standing with God. And as a result, God's grace offends him. Where is the justice, he says. These aren't your people, God. They don't deserve your steadfast love. That was given to us. That was given to the Hebrews. And Jonah just can't believe it. He just wants to die. And rather than doing what he should have done as a, as a preacher and go back into the city and, and help the people as they're trying to figure their repentance out, as they're trying to find their way to the one true God, what does Jonah do? He runs again. And he goes in the opposite direction outside of the city to pout and to probably hope that Nineveh's humility will prove itself false and he can go back to God and say, see, I told you so. You should have destroyed these people. And all of this brought about by the scandal of God's mercy and God's grace. And so how does this come to us this morning? Well, surely this doesn't describe us. We love grace. We wouldn't act like this. Yes, we do love grace. For sure, we intellectually love grace, but our journey of faith at times is just as much a struggle as Jonah's. Not in the same way, not maybe to the same degree, but we, like him, as I've said already, we fail to let grace get down to the marrow of our bones. And yet grace, grace strips us of our perceived entitlements. For Jonah, it was his Jewishness. See, Jonah doesn't really want justice. If he really gets justice, he can't live there. No one can live under real justice. The grace shown through Jesus by the writers of the Gospel was a grace that was given to the worst of the day. Sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. Where was the punishment for that woman that was caught in adultery? Just like the Pharisees, the religious of Jesus' day were offended Search your heart. Jesus comes for those who are not leaning on their heritage or on their 
pedigree. He comes to give new identities, to strip you of all of that perceived entitlement. Well, not just that, and maybe more significantly, grace strips us of our accomplishments. And I think maybe on the surface, maybe under the surface, this is a greater problem for so many of us. If we think back to Luke 15, there's this story of two brothers, and an older brother in spe- specifically who stayed and worked for his father, who served faithfully while the younger son went out and squandered all the father's inheritance that he had given to him. And the younger returns to the arms of grace. And how does grace offend? All these years, I've been slaving for you, and you never gave me the littlest party. See, I want to challenge us with the fact that I think we easily can become Pharisees. We so easily can become older brothers. How has God's grace in others offended you? Where is your hope this morning? Is, is it in your pedigree? Is it in your heritage? Is it in your morality and your faithfulness? Do you subtly think that you are blessed because you deserve to be blessed? God's grace strips away all of that as we look again upon His kindness, His mercy, His grace to a people undeserving. God's grace naturally offends the human heart. Because it's crazy. It offends because in our sin, we just can't believe it. We can't believe that our favor, that His favor isn't because of us. We sometimes just can't believe that there is nothing that we can add to what Jesus has done. And yet the Scriptures remind us, get to that place where you see the depth of God's grace. Where you can not only sing with your lips and with your mind, but with your heart. That grace is amazing because it has saved a wretch like you. God's grace offends the human heart. But there's a second truth I want us to see this morning, and it's this. God wants you to know your heart and strive for His. God wants you to know your heart and strive for His. The other night we had a, our last marriage study of this video series that we've been going through. It's been a good study, and we were talking about the challenge that was given to us to celebrate the hardwired differences of our spouses. The different ways that God the Creator has made our spouses. And yet we confessed how easy, how hard, excuse me, how hard it is for self-absorbed people to celebrate those things in others that we just don't understand. And to really see and pinpoint those things in our lives which we need to change. We're so easily blind. And I think part of 
The reason God gives us Jonah 4 and this story and this picture is to show us the contrast between the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. That we might celebrate once again, that we might worship in awe God's grace and God's mercy. That we might repent of our lack of mercy and grace. You see, Jonah has given up on God. He has given up on life, but God is not ready to give up on him. That's clear from this passage. After listening to the ranting prayer of Jonah, God doesn't blast Jonah either literally or figuratively, but he simply asks him a question. Who do you think you are, essentially? What's behind that? Are you sure you've got this right? What's really driving your response, Jonah? What is really in your heart? God doesn't need to ask a question. He knows Jonah's heart. But he wants Jonah to know his heart. But Jonah's not ready to digest such a heart-wrenching, searching question. He wanted to be struck down so he just didn't have to deal with this and so he just walks away from God's question. Spiritual infantile regression is what one author called it that I read this week. Jonah's words have just saved a city full of people from destruction. There's a lot of grateful folks there. You would have think Jonah could have found a place to rest in the city. But Jonah doesn't want anything to do with the city. He goes outside of the city. He didn't want to be with them. He didn't want to be with anyone. He makes his own little makeshift shelter out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the blazing Middle Eastern sun, a shelter that eventually proves itself to be woefully inadequate. After all, this is modern-day Iraq. It's not a place to just be sitting out in the middle of the day. And so God in His compassion supplements this shelter that Jonah has made by appointing, yet again, the same word that was used of the fish, appointing one of His creatures to do His bidding. A fast-growing plant was commissioned. And it grows up. And it provides shade for Jonah. It's kind of a bizarre story. But maybe what's even more bizarre is that Jonah suddenly is giddy. The Scripture says he's exceedingly happy. He rejoiced with great rejoicing for the first time in the story. Despite all the grace and the mercy that he's been shown, he's happy. He's happy to be comfortable and he's happy to wallow alone in his self-pity. And we think, is that what God was intending? No. See, the vine wasn't appointed by God for Jonah's long-term comfort. It was appointed as a part of that question to reveal his heart, to show Jonah his heart and how different that was from God's heart. For when the plan is taken away, Jonah mourns. He mourns over the death of this plant. 
And God asks again the same penetrating question, do you do well to be angry at the plant? Think about what's behind that anger, Jonah. See, Jonah reveals that his heart is self-absorbed. That his heart is stubborn. His heart is full of pride. He was moved with compassion for the plant of his comfort. And yet content to watch men and women and children and those made in the image of God be utterly destroyed. He had forgotten. He had forgotten the mercy that was shown to him. And he's struggling to fathom the grace that defines who God is. And God is working through all these circumstances to remind him of both. What a chasm there is between Jonah's heart and God's heart. And I'm not saying that we all are Jonah's in the same sense this morning. But this passage, this story, God's dealing with His servant, ought to make us marvel once again at the sovereign mercy and grace of God. A sovereign grace and mercy that we've seen all throughout this story. God's chase is greater than our run. His forgiveness is deeper than our sin. And His heart of mercy is so much wider than our hearts of mercy. See, the Lord is also priming the pump here as we think, as we step back and look at the whole story of salvation. God is priming the pump here in the Old Testament. He's anticipating a wideness of mercy that He is going to bring through His Son and through the inclusion of not just God's people, but all nations are invited to come to the Father through Jesus the Son. And that will be a struggle for many. The New Testament is full of that struggle that it was. But that's the heart of God. And it's the heart of Jesus who had compassion on the multitudes over the harassed and the helpless. Jesus was the one who lamented over Jerusalem. And Peter reminds us that the Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we ask ourselves, is that our hearts? Are our hearts moving towards God's heart? We need to not forget who we are, not forget the mercy we've been given, and let that knowledge fuel our love for one another. Well, there's one more significant thing that I want to look at real briefly from this passage. One more truth, and it's this. God sometimes brings suffering to save us. God sometimes brings suffering to save us. We've had an interesting thing happening in the backyard of the Hitchcocks over the past couple weeks. We found a couple bird nests from the local birds up in Linwood who have decided to build their nests on the ground in our yard, in the weeds. Ooh, I shouldn't have said that. We've got some weeds in our yard. 
among the weeds and among the low bushes. And we've been concerned about these birds because we have a dog and those nests are in harm's way. And so what have we done? We've taken the nest away. Sorry, mama bird, you've got to start over. It's not a safe place for you to be. We're doing that in order to save the birds. But yes, it brings the birds suffering. It brings the birds hardship. But it is their salvation. And here in the book of Jonah, the Lord does something similar for Jonah. And I want you to see two levels of salvation that God brings to Jonah and to us. First, God brings salvation from ourselves. From ourselves. Verse 6 says that the plant was given Jonah to save him from his discomfort. We can actually say literally to deliver him from his evil. You see, there was a greater purpose for that plant that God had in in mind. That plant was made for the worm. And the worm was followed up by the hot east wind. This was suffering sent directly from God. It's amazing. We rightly want to distance God from being the author of sin, the originator of sin, but God here does send suffering to his servant. And he does it to save Jonah from himself, from the selfish heart that he doesn't see, from the anger that is enslaving him, from the distance between he and God that, that he doesn't even yet comprehend. And I heard a great illustration of this this week. It's maybe a story that you've heard before, but it's a story of, it, it again has to do with birds. I don't know why. Two bird illustrations in a row, but... Uh, It's a story of lumberjacks, and they're out in the woods, and they're about to cut down a tree, and they see a huge nest in the tree above. And rather than cutting it down, they they bang the tree, and they rattle the birds until the birds fly out of that nest, and they move, and they make a different nest in another tree, and then the lumberjacks get to that tree, and they bang that tree, and they rattle the birds And the birds leave that nest and go to another tree. And it goes on and on and on. And the point of that story is, this tree is coming down. You will never be free until you settle on something that is unshakable. And that's what the Lord does with us. The Lord sometimes shakes our trees in order to get us out of that tree to something that's unshakable. He will not rest until you rest in Him. And sometimes suffering is the way for Him to get you to that point. I found a hymn this week. I don't know that we've ever sung this hymn. It's a John Newton hymn. John Newton, a familiar hymn writer course of amazing grace, but this is a hymn called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Beautiful hymn. 
And it describes this truth. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas He who taught me thus to pray and He, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with His own hand He seemed intent to aggravate my woe, Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that Thou mayst find Thy all in me. What a beautiful way to say and to speak of this truth. That God sometimes brings suffering to save us. But of course, the book of Jonah has been more than what God is doing in us individually, even as God's Spirit applies it individually to our hearts. Because there is a universal predicament that we all find ourselves in. A salvation that we're all in need of. And the book of Jonah is all about the fact that there is a greater servant of God coming. One to whom Jonah's story points again and again. Jonah Jonah would rather die than see people saved. Jesus voluntarily dies in order to that you might be saved. See, this is the greatest mercy. It's the greatest grace. And it's where we must all begin. It's interesting how this story ends. It it ends with this open question. And we don't know if Jonah got it. We don't know what Jonah's response was. But in a sense, it doesn't matter. We're just left with ourselves. Do we get it? Do we get the truths from this story that God's pursuing compassion pursues our runaway hearts? That God's sovereign grace initiates and sustains. And it's His Word that brings the power. And that God's heart is one of mercy and grace. I pray that God's grace would once again amaze us this morning and through this story that it might shape and fashion us, that it might motivate us to proclaim such a God and such a grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your servant Jonah in all his sin, in all his stubbornness, how easily he is a picture of us and our own prejudices, our own stubbornness and self-centeredness. Father, continue that work in us that You began in Jonah and we assume completed in Jonah. 
a work that we know is not all a bed of roses at times. Sometimes it's suffering that you need to use to bring us to our senses. Do it, Father, for the glory of your name and for our good. And help us to trust you and to look to you and to know your heart even in the midst of those trials. Father, impress these truths upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.